Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. I'm going to keep this one tight. There's been some long ones of late, so I'm going to keep this one nice and tight. Graham Willingham. Willingham is, um, I don't know why I repeated it that then. It's not Graham Willingham Willingham. Graham Willingham uh, is a, a, a journo author. Uh, he's written a book called Not bad thanks. And this is one of the first interviews I've done where I've actually not known the person at all, but I read the book Not Bad Thanks and felt like I knew Graham and felt like I knew the sporting club that he spoke about and the characters involved in that sporting club and I thought there was something very very interesting for this podcast to talk about not just the philosophy of a person, you know, this isn't really necessarily Graham's specific story, but it's the philosophy of something that Graham has helped created and that other people have helped create with Graham and he's become the chronicler of. So um, I, th- I hope you really enjoyed it. It's a bit of a different episode. Uh, next week, I think uh, Sarah Milliken, the UK comedian, uh, powerhouse, one of the best comedians in the entire world. We have a brilliantly fun and funny chat about comedy and life. And then the week after that, we've got a very special episode coming up with uh, a guy that I am a great fan of. Um, a guy called Dan Sultan. Um, I won't reveal what's so special about that episode yet, but they're just some episodes that are coming up in the next couple of weeks as well. But in the meantime, I am on tour. Well, nearly. Uh, March the 8th, I'll be at the Spiegel Tent in Hobart. That's the first time I'll be doing my brand new show, Will Informed. I've been doing some trial shows. Um, some of them have been hit, some of them have been missed, but that's the nature of this time of the year. But um, on March the 8th, I'll be doing the show for the very first time at the Spiegel Tent in Hobart. By the time you hear this, it might be sold out. But after that, I'll be at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I'll be there for a month, 20 shows, but uh, it's over a quarter sold out already. So I would say that it'll probably be half sold out or more by the time the festival starts. So if you want to come and see my brand new show, Well Informed, at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, I would say book some tickets sooner rather than later. Now, this... uh, it's, it's basically going to be a brand new show at the festival. The first preview night will genuinely be a preview in a way that it hasn't been uh, for a very long time. Normally I do Adelaide and Brisbane festivals first. So um, it's going to be a really interesting experience for me this year, Melbourne, going in with a much newer show, a show that I don't have so much of a handle on as I have done previously. So if you are the sort of person who comes and sees the show twice, I know there are some people out there who do that. Um, you know, come in the first couple of nights and then come in the final week and, and see how much it changes and what I think it is at the start and what it becomes. So looking forward to finding that out myself. It's still interesting to be, well, I mean, you know, I'm about six weeks away from, from Melbourne at the moment and I'm still not a hundred percent sure what the show is going to be. Uh, I'm only about three weeks away from Hobart, so I've really got to work it out (laughs) very soon, uh, and get it all together. Um, I will, um, but I, I still haven't quite yet, and uh, so I'm interested to find out. So there you go. Uh, they're the dates that are on sale at the moment, but, you know, Sydney, Brisbane, uh, Perth, all those are going to be announced pretty soon, and then um, other places in Australia to follow when we lock those in uh, during the year, and hopefully at some stage I'll get overseas as well. So if you are a UK or American uh, listener, um, then I'm hoping to come your way at some stage this year as well. So there you go. Uh, Graham Willingham, uh, the uh, Willingham, see, maybe it's because I don't know Willingham. It's Willingham, Graham Willingham. Uh, Graham Willingham uh, has written this book. It's called Not Bad Thanks. I do highly recommend it. Um, 
if you've ever been involved in a sporting club or if you want some insight into what it might be like to be involved in a sporting club, I reckon it's a really good read. So I've said reckon a lot in this intro, I reckon. There you go. <laughs> um, enjoy the episode. I'll talk to you soon. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And this is a podcast where, well, I get guests on, normally, to be honest, so far, guests that I have known in my life. And I tend to ask them who they are and whether they have a particular life philosophy. This may be the first time that I've ever had anybody on the podcast who I did not know personally. In fact, the first time that we had met uh, is uh, five minutes ago, but I feel like I know him quite well because I have read a book that he has written and I was like, I think this is going to be a good guess for the podcast because the book itself is very much about a collection of people who have a philosophy and it's a, a philosophy of friendship and it's a philosophy of belonging and it's a philosophy of being part of a, a club and a sport. And I wanted to explore all these things with the author of that book. So, uh, sir, this is how the podcast uh, normally starts. I say, who are you? Who are you? My name is Graham Willingham. Now, Graham, uh, w- uh, what is the book that I am referring to? The book is called Not Bad Thanks, which is based on the continuing history of a basketball club called Not Bad Thanks, which was formed in 1980. Now, take me back, because I think that like a lot of what we're going to talk about on this podcast is going to be related to this club and this book that you have written. Um, but firstly, let's just talk about the fact that you wrote the book. I want to talk about that as a start. What made you think this is something that I need to write in a book? And what was, I guess, your intention? What did you think that people were going to get out of this book you know, in the writing of it? Uh, the, the idea for the book... Um, evolved from me telling my uh, public relations clients in my previous life of what we'd done on Thursday night at, at the game, after the game. And many said, why don't you write a book about it? Now, I'm a former journo, and there's a book in every journo, isn't there? Yeah, I think there is. Yeah. Well, I think you've got yours out. I've got so. I've got it. I've proved that. I've proved that. I'm away. I'm up and running. Um and I had an archive as part of the the club and my role in the club. I was the chief communicator. I was the treasurer, the secretary, the minute taker, the bulletin editor. And I would write bulletins when something quirky happened. And of course, all those bulletins are in the file. So when I came to write the book four years ago, when I retired, I had all the data, I had all the stories and all the names and facts and figures, tons and tons and tons of facts and figures. So it was just a process of establishing how I should structure the book. I realised straight away that no one would be interested in uh, a run, run-of-the-mill, grassroots men's basketball club playing in business houses in, in Melbourne on a season-by-season basis. Is boring as batshit. So I decided that I would um, create chapters that told parts, chunks of the the club. Most of it is about off-court. So there's some references to uh, us winning premierships. Unfortunately, only six of them in, you know, 78 seasons. It's not very... (laughs) 
It's not good, is it? Well, I mean, I back for the Western Bulldogs, and we would take oh. that. We would take that success rate. I think. Well, I'm a Carlton supporter, and I I'm old enough to remember when they used to win premierships. And I'm hanging on to that. Will. Uh, well, let's go back to when it started. How did the club form? How did the name come about? Let's let's start there. Um, first of all, the name, perhaps. Um, a friend of mine. This is going back into the sixties. He. He was a stockbroker and he was fascinated working, walking to work every morning and home and evening up through Collins Street. Um, he found so many people carrying briefcases with their fingers over the latch and he, he wondered, what were they doing? You know, what an insult to the, the lock mechanisms of the, uh, of the briefcases. What were they doing? Was there a sign? They're all pointing downwards. This is the way he approached life. But he also noticed that every time he said hello to someone, invariably he got back not bad thanks, which is the wrong answer, isn't it? Is it? I mean, well, I, I must admit that... Hello, you say hello, you'd say hello back. Yeah. I'm not asking you how, how I am. Went. I know, so, but there is... I must admit that I felt a little personally attacked when I read about that because I am... Without a doubt, a man who offers a not bad thanks to the question that has never been asked. I love it. I love it. So it, anyway, he, he, this fellow, Billy, known as Billy, he picked up on this and told me about it and we celebrated. So we started looking for it. Then we abbreviated it to NBT, to ourselves. Um, g'day, NBT. And then when I got around to jump on for another... 15 years or so, when I got to register the basketball team and I was given two days notice to get the team on the court, the secretary of the league said, what's the name of your team? And out came NBT. So that's how NBT became registered. But it's really, the proper name is not bad, thanks. But if you went into the Business House Association, you would find us there as NBT. And we were up against... ANZ, BHP, so it fitted. You know, there's no question asked. All the big powerhouses. <laughs> oh, that's right. We were there. Yeah. But the funny thing was that we weren't a business house per se. Though the Business Houses Association was desperate to find a team to get the competition going two days out. Right. Um, so they never asked what was your business. In fact, all our players came from different businesses. So we're bits of frauds. Uh, I, I like the expression, not bad thanks, though, because I think that, A, I love the idea that, yes, it's a it's an answer to an unasked question, which I think is <laughs> yep. lovely in itself. Yep. Uh, but secondly, I love it because it seems to me such an Australian way of expressing how your day is. Yes. You know, it's not that yeah. American thing of like somebody who's just served yeah. you coffee wishing you the greatest day of your entire life. Have a good it day. It is very an Australian thing of how you're going and it's like, not bad. Like, not good. I'm not going well. You're going, not bad. It's an understatement, thanks. isn't it? Right, yeah. It's like, not bad, thanks. That'll do. And we've, we've added to that, and which you would, you would have done too, is that uh, not bad, thanks, yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you re-engage. And when we're, we're playing, uh, our singlets have NBT on the front. And still to this day, you meet in the court, you shake hands before the game starts, and someone will say, oh, what does NBT stand for? And the response is, oh, not bad, thanks. Yourself? No, no, seriously, what's it stand for? <laughs> no, not bad, thanks. Yourself? 
<laughs> and on it goes, and we, we just leave it at that, and they give up. <laughs> so uh, they might give up, but you guys certainly didn't give up. Now, it's not unusual for a group of friends to get yeah. together to start a sporting club. It's not unusual for people to, you know, have a regular thing yeah. they do. When I was at university, you know, my mate and I played regular Tuesday night basketball, but yep. it was a thing that once, you know, I stopped being at university and I went on with my life and you, it's hard for you to find a, a regular night for everybody to get together that eventually, you know, one by one, everybody stops playing and the, the club goes away. So how did Not Bad Thanks become something that still exists today? The Just one thing, going back to an earlier question, uh, Will, the, the team was formed as a result of a bunch of Melbourne mates working in London. They were working in different jobs, but they, hang, they hung out in London. We had a great time. We all came back about the same time and went back to our own friendship and family networks. So there was a threat we're going to lose that fun time that we had in London. So we decided to form a basketball club as a means of keeping that connection going. Now, some of the players who volunteer hadn't played before. A couple of them could actually play the game. You know, they were taught as kids how to dribble between their legs. They knew where to stand. They knew what the positions were, but a couple had never played at all. So it was... Anyone in, all in, we're all in this together. So, well, I think that's, let's talk about that for a second before we get to that other question then, Uh, because you'll uh, notice that this podcast jumps around a little because there'll be just things that I want more details on. But I love the idea that you, you decided that it was important to keep those friendships that you recognize that because so often in our society, I think our friendships drift away not out of indifference to the friendship, but because that we don't know how to anchor them to something that we don't know. So did you recognize at the time that it was important to have something to do together or that those friendships would just through life drift away? Well, there was evidence that they were drifting away. Um, And a few of us got together and said, look, it's too valuable. It was too, too rich an experience to let go. So, yeah, we, we, but we realized that we had to create some rules to, to do, like the rule, had, you had to commit to Thursday night, totally, over and above your family arrangements. Okay, you might have to take the kids, pick the kids up or something like that, but you still had to organize it so you could play basketball and you, you had to commit to being with the group for at least an hour after the game. At a pub. Now, you don't have to drink. You didn't have to drink, but everyone have a couple of beers after the game. So that rule's still in place. So we, when we get looking for a new recruit, we say, look, you know, you, you can't turn up and play and then say, see you next week. You have to be with us. And I think it's generally accepted amongst the, all the players that that is the link. That's why we've continued. Because these... You go to the pub after the game, and if it's um, an ordinary game, there's no conversation about the game. You remember this from your basketball days. You know, just nothing happened to us. So they start talking about life, what you're doing at work, your family, politics, or whatever. It's just general discussion. Um, bunch of men together having a chat over a drink. How important is that, though? Because we talk, we hear so much in society 
now about the curse of loneliness. We hear so much about men struggling with the identity of what it means to be men. Um, you know, and particularly, you know, even there, there are organized men's groups now, places where men can go and speak to other men about the issues that men are having. So often in our society as men, we relate to each other in a joking way, or we make fun of each other, or our friendships aren't necessarily based on being able to sit down and, and talk through what's going on in our life and share that with other people and see if they are having similar experiences. So how much of it has been important because of those reasons, because of those conversations? Look, I, I don't, it's, it is important. It does happen sometimes when in conversation, it might be just two players talking quietly amongst themselves. It's not a group discussion. Um, but yes, sure, they do share. Um, and of course it's important and they feel confident enough to, to share. Uh, it, it could be all sorts of private issues or money or work related. You know, I've heard discussions about um, what do I do with this problem boss that I've got? So yes, there is discussion, but it's not, it's not a formal, you know, now. No. You're this, not going this, out into the forest to bang no, drums and get nude or anything like that. No. No, no, we don't do book that. in it. No, no, <laughs> might be for you. So, well, okay. So t- the importance of rules is interesting to me because when I first read that, I was like, well, I could never do this. I could never commit to being in a place, you know, enough time to be there every, you know, Thursday night. And then the second bit is there would come that time where my girlfriend would say, you have to come home straight after the game that I wouldn't be able to commit to the extra social hour. Has that caused problems with the players over the years, have you had people leave because eventually their life got to the point where their life wouldn't allow them the hour after the game? Yes, that's happened occasionally. Um, and I might've been guilty of that myself. Um, but, but on the other hand, we recently had a player who was out on a date and he took her home early. So I've got to go and play basketball. So, you know, <laughs> Now, I, I could explain it to you, but here's this book. Just read this book and that'll give you the gist of what's going on. Yeah. So, okay. So it starts in 1980. 1980, you play your, your first season. And how many people are part of Not Bad Thanks MBT at that stage? Nine. Yes. We realized that we we needed a squad of nine to account for absenteeism through interstate travel or overseas holidays or whatever. We, you need six, as you know. You need at least six, one to score and the other five to, to play, minimum. Um, but we had nine, and that really worked well. We very rarely um, had to go and find substitute players in those days. And that's our philosophy now. We have a squad of 11, I think, at the moment. Uh, that's going to cause us problems when we get into the final because you're only allowed to have 10. So someone's going to have to miss out. Probably one of the oldest, Will, I reckon, might you know, step down being the nice gentleman that he might be. Um, so the having a large squad also enhances the club room's experience after the game because you've got nine, ten there. It, it makes for a, a nice, friendly atmosphere. It re-knits the players. Conversation is good. Sometimes it's all all in one conversation, lots of laughs. And, hey, did you hear about what's up? It's it works very well having a group that size for the club selection and for the social side. So talk us through the demographics. How many of the original members remain? Three. Three. Um, I'm one of them. 
um, my brother, Lord Albert, and the instigator, uh, early ones. Now, and, all, and all these nicknames, nicknames are very important in this situation as well, right? Yes, they are. Not just for, well, I mean for the book, importantly, for the sake of privacy, I <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for a few of the stories. Yeah. Uh, so, three originals, uh, and then what's the demographics of the rest of the squad at this stage? What, what's your youngest? Who's... 26. Okay. And, and he's a former AFL footballer who's now pl- has moved down to play in the uh, VAFA, and he's lightning fast. And he's exciting. He really is exciting to, to watch. Um, we have uh, a few in the 30, early 30, mid 30s. Um, a couple just turned over 40, uh, a 50 year old, and uh, the other three that I mentioned first are all 70 year olds. So, the, the spirit of this, how does someone who's 26 get introduced to the spirit of what it is that you're doing and decide that, I mean, obviously this is a conversation that I could have with them and they would give me more insight, but I'm asking for your insight into how does that happen? How does this young person find out about you guys, get involved in your group and and then you know want to join it and be part of what you've created? Well, 12 years previous, this young man was 14. And his father was a player. Right. So he played his first game 14 with his dad. Um, so he then filled in over, as he got a bit older, and he played a few more fill-in games. And then when he was um, being recruited by, he was playing with Oakley Chargers in the footy, he could still play basketball with us. He played a few more games, and then he got called up and, got drafted to Fremantle, so that was the end of it. Now he's Fremantle three years, uh, then he came to Melbourne for a few years, and now he's finished his AFL career, he's now free to play again. So he's rejoined. He's carrying on the family ties. Yeah. Well, and, I, and it'd be nice sort of, for him to be involved in an organisation that's a little more professional than Freo. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> People have a little more loyalty yeah, to yeah, MBT yeah, yeah. than they do to Frio. So, and uh, and I've had um, both my sons have played too, and one is still playing. The other one's uh, playing. He's now in London. So I'm interested in that. The idea of like sharing this tradition, you know, with your family. Uh, so you, were you, when you introduce your sons to this, was this something that they were? excited about being involved in or was it something like, oh, does that, do I have to go to dad's thing? I think it was a bit of that. Um, I, I remember Richard was, I'm sorry, I can't use his real name, can I? Um, Scoop. Scoop. Scoop was, um, when he was nine, he played the first game filling in and, and the question was, dad, where do I stand? <laughs> <laughs> but now he's, um, he's, um, a fierce player on the court. And in fact, he has won what we call the bloody gloves bowl for the most number of fouls in a season. So he went from this timid little kid to an enforcer. Well, that's one of the interesting things is that the mythology and things that grow up around this, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just the name of the team, but as you said, you kept all the stats and there's more to it than that. There's, There's the creation of a mythology and a world and a language, whether it be through awards or whether it be through nicknames. How important is that part of putting together a group and a club? Well, I think it. I think it's really important. It adds a sense of theatre and connection. 
at the end of the season, we have a big dinner and, and, and the speeches are fabulous. They're all send-ups of the AFL Brownlow Medal type of functions, tongue-in-cheek um, commentary. Um, it also involves, every week we have voting. Three players vote three, two and one for the player that most gives it, gives it the most heaps. Not the best player, not the top scorer, but the player who actually puts in, puts in really hard. And it could be a single play mm. that will win votes, just over and above the expectations. So everyone's involved every week. Well, three players are, and we fold them up and put them in a sealed envelope and you know, untear them apart and carry on as though it's you know, um, Mr. Demetrio unveiling on um, the middle night. So we have all that theatre and we have songs. We have um, uh, a number of songs that we've been written for the club, which we sing. We've got an anthem, which everyone has to sing. That's another commitment. When not only playing every Thursday night, you've got to learn the words of this anthem, which is very complicated. I mean, that's one step above most Australians in the Australian anthem. So, Well, we have trouble. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Well, the words in this one are NBT over and over and over again to the tune of Silent Night. Right. It's pretty complicated and you have to stand and put your right hand over your heart take off your cap and and let rip but luckily there lord albert is um he has an untrained tenor's voice so he carries it 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 always works when he's he lets rip and we'll do it in restaurants or anywhere if he'll say it's time for an anthem and off we'll go now, what makes it time for an anthem? Is, there a, is it just a feeling that it's anthem time or is there a specific time that it's time for an anthem? Um, the feeling, the feeling. It, it might well be we're about to leave a restaurant and bite night and, and that the suggestion is that we haven't left our mark here. So <laughs> off we go. And it's such a simple tune, of course. Everyone knows it. And sometimes people clap. And say, do it again. Or have you got any others? But half the restaurant just goes about their business. Yeah, they couldn't care less. No one's ever told us to shut up because I think his his leadership and his singing is is good enough to hold us together. So it's it's there's a bit of harmony. There there's something to me that about this story that is it says something to me about life in general, which is that it plays with all the conventions of what is important. You know, like, I mean, you know, the idea of competing, uh, the idea of, you know, sport being an important thing, the idea of exercise, the idea of teamwork, the idea of companionship. You use the rules, you know, that, that you do need an anthem, that you do need rules, that you do need these ways of approaching things. But at the same time in celebrating these things, there's also a sense of that you're pointing out how ridiculous the nature of our existence is, that all rules are arbitrary to a certain degree. They've all been invented by somebody and they've been told that they're important and this is the moment where this thing has to happen. And to me, it has a reflection on the fact that every day we're told when to sing the anthem or when to, you know, a version of when to sing yeah. the anthem or what the rules of the thing are. And they are arbitrary rules yeah. and they are only... Yeah, they only work in so much as people buy into them being good rules. Yeah. What is the secret of getting everyone engaged in the idea that these rules are 
good rules to be followed, that they do keep you together. Like how, how does that uh, work? I, I, I think you feel it. You feel it when you, you, you launch something, you launch a, a song or um, you can feel the engagement. People climb on board, you know, if, if you hit the sweet spot with, um, with songs or poetry, and there's poetry as well, it's, it's a spontaneous reaction, I think. And once, once someone reacts to it, they're there, they're hooked. So any time it happens again, it just evolves. It just, oh, it's warmth, I guess. How... How far into this did you realise that it was something that you were probably going to do forever? Um, it was probably about season 12, I think, when we had our Golden Elbow dinner. It's the best and fairest dinner, or the, the Give It Heaps dinner. And two weeks previous, I'd said to my brother that I've had enough of this. I'm sick of running this bloody club. Players aren't telling me when they're not going to play or they get caught at work and we're getting caught short. Time for someone else to do it. I've had enough. Pass it around. It's not my club. I don't own it. Pass it around. So we come, two weeks later, we come to the dinner and I'm about to get up and deliver my um, seasonal report, all pomp and ceremony, and in which I was going to tender my resignation. And I was told to sit down, and one of the players got up and said, before we start, I'd like to propose a toast to the secretary. They all stand up and propose the secretary. And I realised, well, that's me. Then someone else got up and proposed the toast to the treasurer. That's me. And then someone else said, chairman of selectors. Oh, what's going on here? There's trouble coming here. And on it went. And, and captain. And I was the captain. And with that, the, the, when they proposed the toast to the captain and they told me to sit down, because I tried to get up each time someone had made an offer, and they presented me with a pewter mug on which was inscribed the words, Captain for Life. I'd been done. So... Yeah, that's, that was the turning point. I was trapped. I was there forever. I wasn't trapped. It was fun. Well, of course you weren't trapped because no. you, you have chosen to do this, yeah. but you've chosen to do it, uh, you know, to commit yourself to something that isn't necessarily always easy. And that's, that's of great interest to me because mm -hmm. there must be times where you think, this is a real pain in my ass. There must be times where you think, you know, the logistics of this, the management of this, you know, doesn't bring me joy. So tell, talk me through that process of giving yourself over to something that doesn't always, that sometimes, you know, causes you problems. I'm sure it causes, has caused you time constraints. I'm sure it's caused you issues with people, you know, because you have this commitment over the years. So tell me about giving yourself over to something that has no tangible reward other than the fact that the thing exists. You should talk to my wife about this, Will. I've she, got she, her coming in for the rebuttal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> she thinks there's another thing in, in our relationship called not bad things. Well, I, um, I, do, I do wonder about that, and I'd like to circle back to that, but can we talk about this first? Yeah. Um, certainly there were frustrations along the way. 
with um, trying to ensure, in the early days anyone, that everyone got a fair share of time on the court. Um, and payment, you know, sometimes I had to chase players for their fees. Not very often, but sometimes I have to do that. And sometimes I'd have to, late in the day, I'd get a phone call from someone saying they're not playing. And I'd think, gee, did someone tell me the previous week they weren't going to play? I better check. So I'd end up doing a check. So there's backwards and forwards and phoning and leaving message. Uh, a bit of a pain. Yes, it, it was a bit of a pain. Um, but most most players, or all the players, really, um, n- never really challenged me face-to-face about whether they were getting a fair run on the court or not. But I'd hear it from someone back door, you know. <laughs> you know, oh, God, that's two weeks in a row. I've only had five minutes. You know, it's, I think I've about had enough of this. Or they'd come back to the club rooms and sit there rather glumly. I think, oh, why in the hell is he looking like that? It, yeah, it was difficult. Okay, and you mentioned your wife because this is, I can imagine that, you know, for everybody who has their own little project, uh, you know, it can be the frustration to the you know, the rest of the family occasionally. That's, you know, the yeah. nature of these things. Yeah. And I don't know if that's an unusual thing, but this is a spectacular amped up on steroids version of this. I mean, <laughs> this has become more than just Thursday night basketball. This has become a mantra. It's become a way of life. It's become a very important, I imagine, pillar in your life from reading, you know, the book, it feels like it's become a very important pillar in a lot of people's lives. Like something that, you know, if they took it away from their lives, they would feel like they were taking a major mm-hmm. part of who they are and what they are and how they identify away from their lives. But I imagine from the outside, I mean, all I guess I'm asking is what does your wife think about it? Well, she agreed reluctantly to put a red line through Thursday nights as far as um, entertainment with our friends as a couple. Mm. And um, there was um, there's some collective agreement amongst the, the partners that Thursday night was a night to be celebrated because they had it to themselves. They had the remote control in their own hands. They could watch what they wanted to, to watch. Um, there was um, one player, one incident, he he couldn't get out of a dinner party at his house and he snuck out the back door <laughs> to play. He didn't live far from Albert Park and he, he snuck out and um, played the game and zoomed straight back. It's a 40-minute game, 10 minutes to get there, 10 minutes back. He was away about an hour and snuck in the back door and slipped back into his clothes he had at the in the back porch and sat down. He reckoned no one knew that he'd gone. <laughs> you must have so many great stories like that. Is there one in particular that stands out for you as like, you know, your favourite memory from this experience? No, I, I don't think there is. Um I wish there was, but there's, 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 there's been lots. Um, there's lots of, like there's, we ended up in the tribunal too many times in our first 10 seasons. We were playing in the lowest grade. It was rough, um, particularly in summer when the footballers did something to keep themselves fit. And uh, we were in the tribunal quite a bit. And some funny instances happened there. 
um, the tribunal chairman, when he had a, a woman panellist on the tribunal, he would decree that we couldn't use any foul language in discussing the evidence and everything had to be changed to major or minor. And we had one player facing a charge who was was charged with um, calling a referee a major little minor. <laughs> so the discussion was was absolutely hilarious. You know, it wasn't it was very serious. Um, and we pointed out to the tribunal in actual fact that the woman member of the tribunal would have read the charge sheet and seen the language. Anyway, and there was a, there was another tribunal case when. Um, um, Lord Albert, who experience in tribunal hearings of a heritage nature, was our, dubbed our QC. And he took um, a referee to task over the evidence. He, he said, um, can, Mr. Chairman, can you pass the score sheet to the referee, please? And, and on it went, uh, can you read what's on the back of the score sheet? And did you write that? And it was different to what he'd already offered in verbal evidence. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lord Albert QC then sat back in his chair, his glasses slid down over his nose like Rumpole, and he says, Mr. Chairman, I have no further questions of this witness. <laughs> At the same tribunal era, um, a nickname emerged for one of our players, the referee delivering the charge pointed at the uh, player and said, he's the instigator. He's the one that started the fight. So instigator was duly dubbed to that player. So I'm interested in the process of nicknames because it feels like part of this group bonding, nicknames are so important. And look, you've, I've seen it growing up. <laughs> I was someone who grew up without a nickname. And I always felt like it was a sense. Would, you would have Ando though, wouldn't you? No, well, this is the funny thing. You would think I would get Ando, right? And like a lot of my mates now call me Ando, but growing up in, you know, outside Hayfield in country Victoria, playing junior footy, playing junior cricket, playing junior basketball, I never had a nickname. I was always Will. And I hmm. always felt like that meant that I wasn't fully accepted by the group because the process of getting your own nickname what I'm interested in about this is, uh, is it a selection of people who've brought a pre-existing nickname to the table or are all nicknames individual to playing for NBT? Half and half. Yeah, okay. Yeah, half and half. Um, well, like Instigator, for example, um, uh, a player got the nickname Flash because he's a professional photographer. Okay, good. And um, on his first outing with us, we're in bar in Myers Place in the city late at night and he starts plying his trade. He's photographing the team playing up, uh, which was going to be part of a bulletin, obviously. Mm -hmm. And every time his camera flashed, didn't matter where he was in the room, all of us called out flash in response. So five minutes later, flash. So that's how that nickname came about. You talk about the bulletin, how important, uh, is the idea of there being something like that, that is a kind of a record of those events or the record of things that people have done that is actually a, rather than it just being a, 
vocal and verbal, uh, you know, passing down of stories that there is actually some sort of formal collation of these things. Well, it's, it's something that, that I started off my journalism career with was the naming of names. Um, I think it's important. I, I've seen it work. Um, when I was um, in year 12 at Camperdown High School, um, my first two periods on Monday morning were in the library and I would write up the notes, a report for the local paper on the under-18 football team that I played in on the Saturday. And they're all nicknames. But I mentioned everybody, not just the good players, every single player every week, including the injured players, the bus driver on our way trips, all got a mention. And it was that that got me into journalism. The um, the editor and lobbied my parents. They lobbied the school behind my back that, you know, this bloke's telling a good story. We we want him as a cadet journalist. And uh, eventually that's, that's what happened. Um, so I quite enjoyed that writing up about my mates and it came quite easily. And so, um, I, I did another one years later when my kids were playing with Fitzroy junior footy club, I vented the raw for this, this team and no one knew I did it. The kid didn't know. I'd go up to a kid and say, look, you know, um, you're going to be the guest interview subject this week. You know, what are your favorite footballs? You know, that sort of stuff. And then when the basketball happened, I could see the same thing happen. I, I could see a story. I could see a silly story. They're all silly. My silliness would take over. Something quirky would happen, a bit like what happened in the tribunal. That was the story. Um, so, and I was getting good feedback. I was good getting great connection. Like Flash, for instance, loves them. He, he had a go at me recently. He said, why aren't you writing some more bulletins? I love them. I love them. So I, I've just seen it work and I like doing it. So when you go to write a book, when you transition from, you know, writing the bulletins to thinking, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write the history of this club. I'm going to write about what this club is about. I'm going to tell this story that is our story to a group of strangers. Mm -hmm. Was there any reticence from people who were involved in the club that these stories might be published more broadly? No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, um, Many of them were asked, um, what would you like to see in this book? What's, what are the stories that you think are the hallmarks of the culture of this club? And so they, they, had, they contributed, but they all knew that none of their names would be mentioned. What did you get from those conversations about what they thought the culture of the club is? What were the important themes that kept coming through from them about what the club meant and what it was about? Um, friendship, commitment, they all enjoy the commitment. They, they look forward to it. To me, the commitment is that, like, I mean, friendship, I get, but friendship it, it, without the commitment, is then this is a very different story. Yeah. Like to me, the thing that keeps coming back and the thing that would be the blockage in my head, the thing that when I immediately started reading, going, oh, this seems lovely. I wish I had something like this, but I just could not commit. And the commitment to me seems so important. Yes, it is. But it doesn't seem to them like it's a burden. It seems like something that they celebrate the idea that it is a commitment. Yes. There's, there's never that sense. I don't want to play next week or I don't want to go to the club rooms after. Um, yeah, they embrace it. Uh, I asked you beforehand, cause I was, this is the first time that I've really, you know, we're, we're speaking less about your own personal philosophy and more about the philosophy of, 
you know, something that you've been part of creating and, and something that you've written a book about. And you actually said to me, there's a couple of players quoted in the book who talk about, you know, various philosophies. I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, if you can share some of those with us, because I think they'll sit really nicely here for, mm. you know, uh, at this point. This is, um, this was, came from a speech that a player called Plasma. Now, Plasma, I'd better tell you how he got his nickname. Yes, please. Plasma is a researcher at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, and he um, specializes in blood technologies, uh, immunity systems. So I mean, he got either, the nickname either, Plasma. Either that or he sold TVs. So. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't sell. Anyway, a photograph was taken of a shop, a retail shop that had plasma on the front of it. So that be, that became another newsletter, you know, plasma nice. breaks out, you know. Plasma goes retail, you know. <laughs> That's the sort of silly newsletters. Anyway, Plasma um, made a speech after winning the gold Elbow one night in which he said, I'm worried about the modern media's addiction to exceptionalism. Our focus is constantly guided to people and feats that are out of the ordinary. There is continual hype, not only surrounding out-of-the-ordinary success, but also failure. And to a large extent, this entirely misses the point of team sport. A real team is not defined by any one act of brilliance or game-winning shot, its weakest player or biggest mistakes. A real team, such as not bad thanks, is defined by actions that help the team playing every Thursday night and not trying to play above everyone else, but trying to play above oneself. We celebrate the exceptions to the rule, but we also celebrate the people and their actions that become the rule. So to me, that is such a beautiful piece of language for a start. But secondly, such a, a an appropriate thing, and it was a message that kept coming through for me, which was so often in life we buy into this idea of you know, and we're sold to it, you know, I mean, you know, like advertising is the poetry of capitalism and capitalism relies on us never being, you know, happy with what we have because you're not going to buy a new car if you're happy with the car that you have, you know, it's all built there into the system. But so often we forget that like only a small percentage of us are going to be extraordinary or exceptional at anything that we choose to do. The rest of us are going to muddle by and make mistakes and and we forget to celebrate things for what they are. It just has such a broader message for society than just what it is. And that quote sums it up very well for me. There's another one that you were going to read to me as well. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, before uh, Plasma made that speech, he he said, look, I've done psychology. So we all applauded. Okay. That yeah. was it. <laughs> Well, Hooray for plasma. He's done psychology. <laughs> now, th this is um, um, a commentary by our current court captain, Tsar. And he got the nickname Tsar because he's from Russian blood. Now, he was talking about the relationship between art and sport. And, and he said that it's epitomized by the act of shooting hoops. Shooting hoops is a meditative training exercise for playing basketball. Art is a meditative training exercise for real life. The action of shooting hoops involves eyeing the target, the ring, 
shooting, gathering the ball and repeating the same process over and over again. Engaging with art involves looking at the work, responding, gathering your, your thoughts and looking over and over again. They are both endless feedback loops, circulatory systems that operate by integrating the body and the mind. Furthermore, both actions might be viewed, viewed as solitary, insular and frivolous endeavours, yet they are also, to the participant, a method of being vividly aware of the world. I, I like this is one of the things I love about basketball as a sport, which is that it is, in in many in many ways, can be an individual sport played as a team. You know, many of the skills of basketball. You know, you can you can just go out on a court by yourself and and shoot the basketball. You know, um, you know, in at the highest levels, if you look at you know teams that LeBron James has played on, sometimes you feel like you know. Really, he'd actually be better off if the other four guys just sat down and got out of his way, you know. But I, I'm interested in how you've combined the idea of taking something seriously enough that you're competing, but not taking it so seriously that the competi- competition overt- overtakes the fun. Because if you just try for it all to be fun, then people don't take it seriously and actually the fun goes away. If you treat it as a frivolous thing, then it becomes frivolous. But if you are too intensely competing, then it would stop being fun. How have you kept the balance of those two things through the history of this club? Look, I really don't know how to answer that. Um, We go out to win, as you should do. No point in playing sport, I think, unless you really push yourself to win. Um, Yeah. Look, well, I don't really know where to go with that. Okay, um, that's I, fine. I, I can, I, it's good when I ask a question that stumps somebody. Yeah. I always enjoy, like I've, <laughs> I've thought about it a little bit more than they thought about oh, it. Oh, too much. A pat on my back. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well done, Ando. I've given myself a nickname. It's fine. Uh, talk to me about loss. Have you lost, uh, it, I mean, you've been doing this for a very long time. Um, I ask this without knowing what the answer is, but have you lost people? Like, have people died during the? Have you lost anyone from the team because they have died? Yes, um, we've um, we've lost three players and um, a player's partner. She died too. So, three of those happened in the one year, twenty thirteen, which was really awful. Um, we go through the respectful routine of wearing black armbands um, for those occasions and for the occasions when a player's parent may have passed away and we will attend the funeral. The club will always attend a funeral. And um, there have been occasions when several of us are in the... Um, in You call it an audience at a funeral? In the, well, in the crowd. <laughs> in the crowd. <laughs> And um, and references made to the the parents' knowledge and support of their sons playing for not bad things. Mm. And when that's mentioned, those in the players or attendants call out, "Yourself!" That's <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do. Look, it it was awfully awfully sad. Awfully sad to to lose these these players. Um, wh- one of them 
um, we've renamed the Golden Elbow Award in his name, and he's the only player I think in the book that has his real name name mentioned. But it's it was it was tough. It was it was really really tough. There was um there was a, a story in here about one of the players whose nickname was Rudge, and and he had a disability, and he asked me whether he could play a game because he'd been a supporter, strong supporter. And we even gave him player status because he turned up and, um, and scored so many times. And he, over the years, he bought club caps and singlets. And he said that, you know, I'm a fraud. I'm a player. I've got all the gear, but I've never been on the boards. I've never signed a sheet. And I said, I, I can't let you play. You'd be knocked over. It's just too dangerous. Uh, for the insurances, the association wouldn't like it either. And um, a few months later, he, he let me know that he was coming to Melbourne. He wanted to play the game, the one game. And so I told the team at the club rooms um, as soon as I could and it was unanimous. They said, this is ridiculous. Make it happen. Doctor, go and make it happen. He's got to play. He's one of us. I was quite staggered by that. So I contacted the association and the team were due to play that night and I structured this plan. Everyone agreed to it that we'd get him out on the court. We'd stick him under the basket. We would win the centre tap, take the ball up to him. He'd shoot a basket unopposed. The opposition would be standing around folding their arms. He'd get the basket in and then we'd call a sub. Mm. So he'd, he'd get a score. He'd be on the score sheet. He'd be in our history as a player. And that's subsequently what happened. But, you know, a couple of years later, he died. But, and his, his brother wrote to us saying that game was one of the most important things that, that he ever did. So it was, it was very sad. Uh, do you think about a time where you will stop being involved in this club? Or is this a thing that you've now gone, look, you've seen it through this far. You know, you, you, you're going to see it right till the end. Well, look, I, I don't want you to, to tell my son this, but... He's sort of emerging as a, a potential um, manager, organiser. You've got a succession plan? I, well, <laughs> I hope so. Um, at the moment, I'm, I get a few minutes each week on the court. I'm quite happy with that. Um, but it'll come a time when, no, I should stop playing. It becomes too dangerous. <laughs> and I think he's got a group of um, players around him that have embraced everything about the club, the whole lot. And I think it will continue. I'm confident it will continue. Uh, Graham, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about it. It's a really interesting book. Um, uh, Not Bad Thanks is the name of the book. Uh, can people get this just at regular bookshops? Do they need to go to a website? Like where is the best place for them to be able to find the book? Well, it's in good bookshops, but there is a website called notbadthanks.com. And uh, they can order it there. It's been yes, a real pleasure to uh, talk to you today, mate. Thank you yeah. so much for coming in and sharing your story. Um, and uh, I'll, there'll be plugs up the front. I'll do a proper intro and <laughs> give it all a spin. But this, this is really the end of the podcast <laughs> at this stage. Thank you very much, mate. Thanks, Ando. Oh, thanks. <laughs>